All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 189. What on earth is in English? This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Laura, Heather, and Catherine for contributing already. This episode is going to be a little different from most episodes. We're going to take a break from the main story briefly and talk in larger terms about what's going on in Eastern Britain, because I realize that my slavish attention to the main storyline has probably allowed you to miss something truly astounding. And really, it's hard to see unless you're given an overview that highlights it. But it's really important for our understanding of what's happening on the island, what will continue to happen, and why these people are doing what they're doing. We're seeing the first real sprouts of a people called the English taking root. They've been there for a while. They were there about 150 years earlier when Bede wrote his ecclesiastical history of the English people, but they were so small that you could easily overlook them. Even now in the mid-9th century, they would be unlikely to draw your attention unless you knew what you were looking for. But by the end of the 9th century, just less than 50 years from where we are right now in the show, these tiny little seedlings will have turned into a massive oak tree. The shape of this tree is passed down to us from an early entry written by Asser, proclaiming that King Alfred would go on to become, quote, king over the whole English people, except that part that was under Danish rule, end quote. This episode will be my attempt at explaining why this phrase, so small and seemingly mundane, is such a big deal because I would be doing you a huge disservice if I didn't highlight exactly what a massive undertaking it was to become, quote, king over the whole English people, except that part that was under Danish rule, end quote. And it's not for the reasons you're thinking. When first looking at Asser's statement, the instinct is to think about politics, to think of how this tells us of the increasing conflict with the Danes, or how it implies that Alfred will become a mighty king, almost a Bretwalda. But that's not the thing that I want to talk about today. And I don't think it's the most significant part of what Asser said. We will, of course, talk about the wars against the Danes, and we'll cover Alfred's losses and victories, and all of that will be no doubt a great deal of fun. But frankly, the wars and issues of kingship are the lesser part of the story. The thing that made Alfred great had less to do with battles and had more to do with cultural matters. Asser doesn't tell us that he became a Bretwalda, a Britain ruler. That's something that the people would have known when Asser was writing. Those who were familiar with history would have seen it in the past. A king mighty enough to rule the territory of Britain, which often seemed to be shorthand for the land south of the Humber. But Asser doesn't tell us that. He tells us that Alfred was the king of the English. That is the tree that I've been talking about here. It's the birth of a people, of an identity, and a big part of why Alfred was great can be encompassed in a question that he no doubt got at some point when he was trying to convince the English to unify behind him and his house. And the question is this, what is an English? It's unlikely that many people during this time would have had any sense of what the term even meant, beyond, of course, the handful of nobles and monks who had read Bede. And even those who had read Bede might have thought that long ago there was a place called Angelorum, 
probably somewhere near Northumbria, and that's where the English lived. Maybe with the elves. The English just wasn't a thing for most people. <laughs> Frankly, this concept isn't easy to even wrap our heads around. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to put this episode together, but it was a lot. And right now, on my umpteenth attempt, I'm still not sure if I've got it properly dialed in. The worst part is that this episode is just handling a pretty simple aspect of this subject, or at least it should be a simple aspect. Namely, why it's a big deal. I should be able to explain to you why something is important, right? That's sort of the base level of the job. And usually, cultural episodes are where I really flourish, and I can often record them off the cuff. I live and breathe cultural history, but for some reason, this isn't easy at all. And I think that's because there's something about cultural unity and shared identity that just feels natural. It feels inevitable. The idea that the English identify with being English is normal. And to suggest that it isn't is sort of like trying to explain to someone how time at sea level passes differently than time at the International Space Station. I could run you through the math and explain time dilation, but the whole time I'll be fighting against both our brains saying, this can't be right. Time is time, surely. Additionally, if you want to give a physicist a headache, ask her to explain gravity. Like, really explain it. We all think we know gravity and how it works on a big level and when we're talking about Earth. But get really far from Earth? Or get really small? Suddenly, gravity doesn't seem to work the way we thought it did. And that leaves us with an uncomfortable question of whether or not gravity as we know it is really a thing at all. Or if it's just an effect of some other phenomenon that we haven't worked out yet. Cultural matters and many social science concepts in general feel a bit like gravity. They're things we should know intrinsically. And when it comes to ethnicity, which is a major root of Englishness, it certainly is something that feels like truth with a capital T. That it transcends place of residence, and it can even go beyond birthplace depending on who you're talking to. There's just something deep inside you that you either have or you don't. It's innate. It's in your bones. And this sense of innateness is such a problem that many social scientists, and social scientists are anthropologists, sociologists, economists, and other fields that study humanity as a group, as a society. Well, social scientists have to spend the early part of every single article that they write saying in academic terms, no, seriously, this is not as self-evident as you think it is. In fact, it might not even be a thing. So here are a bunch of assumptions that you might have now, please do me a favor and ditch them. It's a nearly impossible undertaking because culture is so deeply entrenched that even academics talking to other academics in the field have this struggle. And so, as I'm sat here floundering at my computer for the fourth day in a row, I guess I can take some solace in that. But this is the task that I've set out for myself, so let's take another swing at it. And fingers crossed that this will be the final version. And I guess it makes sense to directly address the major block that exists for me when it comes to the matter of Englishness, cultural unity, and a shared national identity. Namely, that here in the U.S., a sense of a universal national identity is largely taken for granted. 
It really is seen as the natural state of things. Like all things being equal, people will unify into a single shared identity, even when there are absurdly large numbers of cultures who see themselves as distinct and separate from each other. And there really are a lot of cultures here. Even once you get past the obvious immigration groups, you still have really big regional differences. The West Coast and the South are very different on a whole host of issues, from food habits to social hierarchies to the social acceptability of truck nuts. Even if you just choose one coast of the United States, you'll still find fairly distinct cultures and even more distinct opinions about those cultures. Oregon and California might both be on the West Coast, but culturally, we have a lot of differences. This is true even within the states. And this is the one that I've lived with for most of my life. People from Eastern Oregon tend to see Portland as Sodom and Gomorrah reborn. While here in Portland, we regard Eastern Oregon as an unappealing blend of Tatooine and that town from Footloose before Kevin Bacon fixed it. And yet, despite all those differences, virtually everyone here agrees that they're Americans first. And only after that do they start complaining about those jerks who live in that other area. This is astounding when you consider how big the U.S. is. All of the EU can comfortably fit within the continental U.S., with room to spare. And yet there's a sense of overarching identity that transcends our regional differences, and it even transcends whether or not someone isn't voting correctly. It's a shared identity that is so strong that even though I'm just a green card holder, I still see myself as part of the whole. We're Americans. And then Oregonians, Portlanders, Eastsiders, nostalgic Goths, and so on. It feels natural, but it isn't. Historically, it's rare. Really rare. To get a sense of how it could have gone differently, take a look at the EU. The member states of the European Union don't see themselves as European first. Individual national identity is still deeply entrenched. And that was made incredibly clear with how Greece was handled. There wasn't the same sort of we're-all-in-this-together vibe that you get with the U.S. Social scientists can attempt to explain why this difference exists far better than I, and they will no doubt point to numerous shared national conflicts, the necessity of working together that comes from frontier living, the melting pot nature of our nation, the strangeness of having a young nation without much of an ancient history since our predecessors mostly wiped it out. There are all sorts of things that can explain this. But the point is that this thing that many of us take for granted is pretty extraordinary. And that is no less true for England. The idea that there is an England and that Englishness is a thing is pretty amazing when you think about it. For many, the concept of Englishness is timeless. Like the idea has been in the region for as long as there have been people there. As if the Beaker people were complaining about the quality of the tea in Salisbury while they were completing Stonehenge. It's absurd when you think about it logically, but on an emotional level, it just feels right. And I suspect that's because of how attached we are to the concept of Englishness. One of my pet peeves is a good example of what I'm talking about. Far too often, especially around the city of London, Englishness is treated as being synonymous with correctness. There's the English way of doing something, and then there's the wrong way. It honestly drives me nuts. But think about what it shows about our concepts of a shared identity. Englishness is so pervasive, and it's so universally adopted, that it even applies to the type of things you do. 
Things, by the way, that are absolutely not tied to England. They weren't invented in England. They aren't unique to English living. They weren't even first pioneered in England. For example, your behavior while on the tube. Not talking on the tube and not even making eye contact is very English. But why? What does that have to do with England, ethnic identity, birthplace, or anything else? It's just an odd quirk. But here it is, lumped in with all the other things that make up a general sense of who the English people are. This idea of English identity runs deep. But what we need to wrap our heads around is that when this Englishness project was started, Englishness wasn't a thing. And to get a sense of what Alfred and others were facing, think about what we've been talking about throughout the last several seasons of the BHP. When we started talking about the post-Roman era, we weren't talking about communities with a shared identity that spanned the vast majority of Eastern Britain. We were talking about farmers, families. We were talking about immigrants moving in and sometimes mixing with local populations and other times fighting with them. We were being told of the old Roman order shattering and a shocking number of tiny chiefdoms being formed all over the place. Some of them being run by the remnants of the Romano-British, some being run by immigrants from across the Channel, some by the Irish, and some by the Picts. There wasn't an English identity any more than there was an Irish, Welsh, or Scottish identity. All of those are constructs that wouldn't come along for many centuries. We weren't even really talking about petty kingdoms for the most part. They were barely communities. They were just families. Basically clans. But that family identity ran deep. It's why their family names live on today. Once, in southern Britain, there was a man named Hasta, and his family came to dominate an area to such an extent that they, the Hastingas, which means the kin of Hasta, gave their name to the area. And it still survives today. Hastings. That was who they were. That was their shared identity. It was what they knew. Because early on, there were pretty much just small family settlements, not kingdoms. When the Hastingas came to control Hastings, there likely wasn't a Sussex yet. In those early days, they were probably autonomous, having no government or larger structure that they were a part of other than their immediate community. Think about it like Mad Max. Bartertown answers to no other authority. Bartertown is Bartertown, and that is it. But over time, there were communities and families that grew more powerful than others, and they began to stretch their influence out over their neighbors. And that's where our story really started to get interesting, because now you have the question of how do you move from a clan identity to a larger communal identity? Let's say you have a small community that's mostly comprised of your extended family members and allies. It really is small, though. Virtually everyone you know can tie themselves back to your great-great-grandfather, Unferth. Sure, you trade a little bit, and sometimes your family will intermarry with the people from neighboring communities. But overall, the Unferthingas, the kin of Unferth, tend to keep to themselves. And that isn't because you're a bunch of neurotic farmers who suffer from social anxiety. Your family's isolation is strategic. Life in southern Britain during the post-Roman era could easily be described as anarchy. 
and anarchy is a bit like the worst aspects of an unsupervised playground. You either want to be the biggest kid, or you want to have enough friends around to keep you safe, or if you don't have any of those things, you'll want to keep your head down. So, after a few bad experiences, your family started to learn that unless you're talking to an unferthing goss, you probably should be on your guard. Or better yet, don't talk to strangers. Consequently, the people that you know and the people that you trust are the Umferthingas. Those are your people. That's your identity. That's where your loyalty lies, at the family level. Social scientists often refer to this as the formation of an in-group. Now let's say that I'm Churdich of Wessex. I'm a farmer, so is my son Chinnerich. My family and I have our own in-group. And to us, the Umferthingas are an out-group. Simply people who aren't us. However, we've been in this region for a while, and because our families have known each other and traded with each other, we've developed some trust. So, when I suggest that we work together and present a united front against those jerks from just over the hill, it sounds like a good idea. Further, you see me in a fight, and you know I can hold my own, so we agree that if there is a fight, you'll follow my lead. That's a big development for us. Even though we aren't from the same family, and this is a time of deep distrust of outsiders, we've moved past that and said, okay, we've traded for a long time, our families have become close, and if you need my help, I will be there, just as I know that you will be there for me if I need you. Great. We now have a community. The two groups have formed a new shared in-group out of two out-groups. And I start calling it the Gawissa. And as a bonus, I'm placed as the head because I came up with a name. But my work isn't done. At any moment, this whole thing could break apart. You aren't loyal to the Gawissa. Not really. The old biases towards your family still exist, even though the boundaries have softened between the two clans. You're loyal to the Unferthingas. That's who you know. Deep down, you know you're not one of the Gawissa, you're not even entirely sure what that is. When push comes to shove, the needs of the Umferthingas must always come first. And if another community from down the way makes a better offer than I can, it's entirely possible that you might side with them. After all, family comes first. So how do I get you to stop identifying solely with the Umferthingas and start seeing yourself as a Gawissa? How do I get you to sublimate your clannishness so that we can begin to form something larger than just our two families? Well, that's a big part of what we were talking about in Season 2. You had all sorts of things that contributed to this shift, and I won't go into all of them, but here's a quick rundown of a few. You'll probably remember that early on, we had a great deal of shared conflict with the neighboring communities, and at least according to the Chronicle, it was pretty strictly on ethnic lines. Communities that were culturally Germanic were fighting with communities that were culturally British. So, you've got something that has you working together as a group. And at the same time, it's creating an us-versus-them environment. According to social identity theory, that's critical. Often, social groups begin to form a sense of identity by singling out who they aren't. The in-group needs an out-group in order to solidify their collective identity. It's why teenagers can sometimes be total dicks. And helping grow this sense of a shared identity, which is bolstered through conflict with another group, 
are traditions like feasting, which reaffirm and solidify the identity. I really think this part is key, by the way, since these feasts involved a great deal of deliberate bonding. Think about it. They could last for three days. That's three whole days of dudes drunkenly saying, I love you, man. And for women, it's several days of cooperative preparation for the feast and work in the feasting hall. Have you ever planned a large event, like a wedding, and involved your friends and stuff? If that's not bonding through shared trauma, I don't know what is. But these feasts also meant three days of epic tales of past glories. Now, early on, they probably would have been tales of legendary founders. So you'd be talking about Unferth and his deeds. And because I'm Churditch, and apparently I'm that jerk who always has to one-up everyone at a party, I'd be talking about Woden. But over time, these stories would begin to be about our shared glories. Like that time we kicked the hell out of those sheep f***ers who lived just over that hill. Add to this all of the things that you learned from those cultural episodes. All those episodes about travel, xenophobia, feasting, storytelling, games, clothing choices, and everything else. All of it tells the story of how a bunch of families who were just out for themselves started to find things in common and develop a culture that they identified with. So eventually, instead of just being the Umfrithingas, you began to also truly feel that you were part of the Gawissa. Or at the very least, that you could trust a family who was part of the Gawissa more than you could trust a family from Kent or Mercia or Cornwall. And then something changed. My family put together a war band, and I started riding around collecting taxes for, ostensibly, protection. Maybe protection from my war band, maybe protection from those people over the hill. And I told you that I was the king, and that I had the right to rule thanks to the fact that my friends were psychopathic peacocks, and also because I was descendant from the Allfather. Suddenly, those boasting statements in the feasting hall started to make sense, but too late now, I was on top, and I took steps to keep it that way. The trouble, though, was that this was a new concept for a lot of the communities. You'd have people from places like Berkshire saying, I have to give you a bunch of my food because you're the king? Says who? This food is for my family. You also had rival nobles who thought that they could do the job much better. So, you had territories being seized, defecting, rebelling. You had coups, assassinations, civil wars. You had pretty much all the stuff that dominated the third and fourth seasons. Convincing people that they're part of a kingdom would have been pretty tough. Though again, shared conflict was probably quite helpful in accomplishing this. And the wars did begin to ramp up. But this time, they weren't just directed at the culturally British communities. They were also directed at their culturally Germanic neighbors. Neighbors whose royal families were linked to their own. Neighbors who likely dressed similarly and shared a language. They just had odd accents. But the economics of the time, as well as the religious tensions between Christian kingdoms and pagan kingdoms, gave them plenty of reasons to fight. And so, of course, that gave these communities a new in-group and a new out-group. And that always helps. You also had the continuation of the feasts, shared foundation myths, and the simple inertia that comes from saying, well... My father was West Saxon, and his father was West Saxon, so of course I'm West Saxon. 
And all of those changes and all of those interkingdom conflicts pretty much dominated the story for seasons three and four. But think about how many conflicts we've talked about. How many times we've seen this kingdom or that kingdom fight with its neighbors? How many times we've seen kingdoms fall into civil war? How many times the warbands were mustered to fight and kill those people who lived in that kingdom over there? And how many times the people were likely told of exactly how wicked their rival kingdoms were? This process of demonizing those outgroups, or even anyone who wasn't part of your in-group, is what social scientists often refer to as othering. And it would have been very useful to create bonds within the kingdom. Not only are you suspicious of people outside of your kingdom, you actually loathe them. Because they don't just eat funny, they eat immorally. They don't just smell, they spread disease. Those other guys were bringing on the end of Christendom and the age of apocalypse. F*** those other guys. And that's all well and fun. But now that we're entering the Viking Age, it's a bit of a problem. The Umferthingas have been West Saxons for generations, and they know who and what the West Saxons are. The wars with Kent, Sussex, Mercia. Oh man, the wars with Mercia. The wars with Essex, with the Cornish, the Welsh. All of these experiences have given them a rich foundation of, we are a people apart. This is our land. This is our people. We are West Saxons. And that's what I want you to be thinking about as we continue to go forward in our story. Because while the kings of Wessex that we're currently talking about are able to draw upon that background of unity that their forebears had given to them, it isn't without its problems. The Germanic kingdoms are showing us that inter-kingdom cooperation does not come naturally to them. They have centuries of experience cautioning them against it, in fact. And eventually, we're going to have the last son of King Aethelwulf, a sickly young boy with a weird name, trying to convince the people that they're actually all part of the same group, even those immoral sex fiends who live across the river. All of them are the in-group, and they're all in it together because they, at their core, are English. And no one is going to know what the hell that means. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you're missing out on conversations like how I got mansplained at at one point because someone mistook me for being a woman and was kind of a jerk, you can learn all about things like that on Twitter. We're at British Podcast, and we have a whole bunch of other different communities. I just kind of really have fallen in love with Twitter, which is why I keep talking about it. But you can find links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. Oh, I forgot one. The east side of Portland really hates the west side of Portland because they're f***ing yuppie scum. Isn't identity building fun?